episode of the Pedestrian Podcast. Uh, we said last week that um, I'm going to give it a week. I'll give it a week and not, absolutely nothing has changed. Uh, Adam will be along in a few moments, uh, but joining myself and Adam, myself, Stuart Court and Adam, are two guys we spoke to at the start of the off-season, at the peak of all the Russell Wilson, whatever that was. Uh, Mr. Rob Staten and Jackson Bevins, how are we, guys? Doing great. Appreciate you guys having me on. I know it's... Uh pretty late there so i appreciate you accommodating no 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 worries rob how are we very good i'm sat in the dark tonight because i did a chat with joe fan yesterday and all of the comments were about how the lights in my room um just looked like a halo um so it's gone and i'm sat in the dark so it, it's great to see jackson sat there in this wonderful mm, again uh afternoon uh and and <laughs> yeah it's and, a good it's a good one today. By the way, how great is Joe? Oh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely uh, fantastic. And you were on 710 yesterday or today? Yeah, uh, yesterday. Yesterday, yes. yes. The days kind of meld into one. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, it was, it was on there, yesterday. man. That was awesome. No, thanks, man. I, and this, uh, obviously, uh, whenever there's anything negative going on, <laughs> yeah. I'm your man. <laughs> uh, so um, Jackson obviously the, uh, the main co- point conversation when we spoke to you a few months ago was Russell Wilson he's, he's he, he, he seemed to be trying to take some of the the limelight with all the Jamal Dwayne holdouts not aren't holdouts but are um, quite worrying what's what, what's your read on how things stand with Russell but obviously the two people who haven't yet practised 10, 12 days into training camp. Yeah, yeah, a few directions we can go with this. I think I think the the one big change that we've seen with Russell Wilson is he has become fully acclimated to his superstar status. You know, he has appeal beyond the Pacific Northwest now. He has appeal beyond football now. And uh, and he's gotten very comfortable with that and he's he is attacking that with the same single-mindedness and ferocity that he's always taken to his football, to his charity work, to uh, his training, everything that he does, you know, he, he is so focused and committed to uh, being as much of that as possible. And I think he understands his leverage now. You know, we, we all talked about it last time we were here that he was really for the first time flexing publicly on the front office and, and trying to make some things happen. And, you know, he, it was cool for my first thought when I saw that, You know, Russell Wilson was saying, hey, or it came out that he was willing to restructure in order to make some of these things work. I was like, yes, that's awesome. This is something that we've always talked about how helpful it would be if he did that. And and then as he peeled back the layers on exactly what that means in this specific uh, situation. And and I'm sure everyone knows, but just just to make sure we're talking about, you know, Dwayne Brown, the best offensive lineman and Jamal Adams, arguably the best defensive player um, holding out or holding in technically. Uh, in order to, um, you know, avoid their fines while trying to negotiate new contracts. And so it was cool that he said he was willing to do that. But, um, you know, him doing that actually would kind of complicate some things. And one, that's actually a unilateral decision that the team can make. They don't need Russ's permission, but it's always great if you can get the star on board with making that change to his compensation. Um, But it does just kick the can down the road. And, and it would be great if if that's what gets Brown and, and Williams or Adams under contract here. 
but uh, it, it doesn't sound like it's something that's really going to be that necessary. And I think it's a way for Wilson to say, Hey you guys, look, see, I'm, I'm doing everything. I'm doing everything that I can. Yeah. Now I need you guys to do it. Right. Like what, you know, but in, in reality, I don't know this restructure really helps, especially with DK Metcalf's enormous contract waiting in the wings. He's probably going to become the highest paid wide receiver of all time when it's his turn. Um, you know, Russ's own next contract is waiting in the wings, hopefully. And I still think presumably here in Seattle, but that's a huge uh, consideration. And the type of restructure that would free up a few extra million to get Dwayne and Jamal down now would uh, potentially limit the team's flexibility with Russ down, down the road. So it was cool to see. I, I, I don't know functionally how helpful it is, but um, it's, it's certainly a great soundbite. Uh, Rob? Well, first of all, Adam's turned up and uh, late, like Harry Kane. That's already quite enough of that. I've got one star that I need to have a go at. And if I need to start on Russell Wilson right now, we will do that, Rob. So don't worry. I was going to ask Adam, you know, which which was the most... um, well, I, if I don't need to ask, I know what the answer to this is. But you know, do you feel like you've been you've been caught from both sides? That first of all, you had Russell Wilson trying to manufacture a way out of the Seahawks, and then you have Harry Kane doing the same. And uh, you know, who is who has the who is the worst agent? Is it Mark Rogers or is it Charlie Kane? I mean, I'm so disgusted with <clears throat> at the minute that I almost can't joke about it. And I, I did actually message you. I'm, I'm pleased you were talking about this uh, Wilson, what a magnificent gesture to offer to restructure his contract that he has no say in whatsoever. I mean, what a, what a class act that proved to be. I'm, I'm pleased that I joined in in the middle of that conversation because I did text you yesterday saying you shouldn't really put your own quarterback in the bin uh, as per our segment, but It did get me close to see that because as someone that does feel that we're about nine months away again from the, uh, you know, a Wilson drama of him wanting to leave, this idea of him restructuring the contract for me is just, uh, you know, just a way that completely hamstrings the team in nine months time if if he's at it again. So uh, it did feel like a bit of an empty gesture, but uh, I'm pleased to start on such a, a buoyant note. Uh, from my appearance on the pod. 15 minutes late has pissed me off no end at the best of times. And now I get to join with these delightful, uh, you know, <laughs> happy times. So what a great time for me to be alive. Yeah. Uh, Rob, uh, last week I said that I kind of understand why the team are reluctant to pay or extend or bend over to whatever Dwayne Brown wants because of age, because of injuries. I mean, I don't think he practiced like more than half a dozen times all last season. It makes sense, but is it at a point now where the sense of it is more, is being you know, surpassed by the need of the, as you said, one of, as Jackson said, one of the best left tackles in the game being on that left side for this O-line unit? Well, I'm afraid to say it's just become the norm for the Seahawks. You know, they, they've gone about five months without being a circus. So, um, you know, let's be a circus again, essentially. That's what the issue is here. And, and look, I, th- I read the, the Jamal Adams piece in the Seattle Times last night before I went to sleep and laughed loudly. It's good job that my wife and children are not in the house uh, for, for a couple of days because it would have woken them up. Because I'm, I, I'm reading this correctly, uh, the, the issue with Jamal Adams, that the Seahawks will not budge and, and Jamal Adams will not budge, is all over. Two million dollars of guaranteed money. <laughs> it's like, are you have, I mean, come on, talk about first world problems here. Get together and just get it done. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. And, and really, 
with respect to Dwayne Brown, if you are signing any player, it doesn't have to be Jamal Adams, it can be anybody. If you're signing someone into $17.5 million a year contract, that has to get done before you start doing anything else. So get that done. It's ridiculous that it's lasted. If that's, where, if that's how close they are to getting this done, it's preposterous that it's not been done, frankly. And, it, and both sides of this argument need to just grow up and get it done. And then with Dwayne Brown, you, you're right. I think the problem is, is that when you turn, when you have a player turning 36, who is very important for this year, you don't have millions of dollars to just sort of give him a bit of a, a bonus for 2021. And you want to create some flexibility that you can maybe improve some other positions rather than just paying a guy that's already on your roster. And then you sort of look down the line and think, well, do you really want to give Dwayne Brown, for example, a two-year extension? You've been down this road where players have retired either because of injury, Cam Chancellor after signing an extension, or because they just decided they don't want to play anymore, Marshawn Lynch. Do you really, you know, if, what if Dwayne Brown has a really tough year with injuries or whatever, and then decides, I'm, I'm, you know what, guys, I'm going to call it a day, and you're left with a load of dead money next year, and, you, and we'll all turn around and go, well, what did they give him an extension for? But we sit here today thinking, well, if he misses week one, then that's even worse. So, you know, you, it's, it's a difficult balancing act. I think they're probably just trying to wait it out and see if, he can, if he's seriously going to hold out and not play games. I think, listening to Jake Heaps the other day, who's obviously well-connected, that, yeah, he probably is going to miss games if, if they don't do something. But once they've got Adams done they can focus on that and hopefully come to a resolution. There doesn't seem to be any real bad blood between, I think Dwayne Brown likes being part of the Seahawks franchise and, and this will probably get done, but I can't help but feel guys, but you know, can, can there not just be some plane sailing for a while in Seattle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's you know, stuff going I, on. I, I do, I do want to jump in on that point. Cause I think it's a good one. You know, the, to go back to Jamal's situation, yeah, it seems to be, yes, there's a $2 million difference in, in guarantees. And and what I read, and, and you guys can chime in if you've heard differently, my understanding is they've offered him four years, $70 million, would make him the highest paid safety in the NFL, but it also accomplishes their dubious goal of keeping Bobby Wagner the highest paid per annum player on that defense. And, and I appreciate that nod to Bobby for sure. I also think that you don't trade for a player of Jamal Adams' uh, caliber and character without him being the guy, without plans of him being the guy of carrying that torch on from Bobby and and being the leader of that locker room. He's been the leader of every locker room he's ever been in from the sounds of it. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, Seattle's offering 40 or $38 million guaranteed. Jamal's camp wants 40 And on the surface, that seems super minimal, and it probably is. I was reading another aspect of it might've been from the same article that Rob referenced that says, you know, really what he's wanting is to spread out the, the guaranteed money over one extra year than Seattle's ever done before. I think he wants to spread out over all four years. So he's got guaranteed money to count on all four years and Seattle's never done that. They they've never done more than three, which is what they're offering him now. And so Seattle's front office has always been really hard line negotiators. And I think that worked really, really well when they had uh, all their best players were young. 2010 through 2014, all of their best players, all of their pro bowlers, all their Hall of Fame track guys were coming off of rookie contracts. And there's a little bit more leverage there uh, with the team than when guys are coming up for those third contracts. And, and in this case, you know, Jamal's second, but they, they did a great job during that time of holding precedent. And, and I think that their inflexibility on some of this has started to hurt them in the last few years as holdouts have become really, really common. They've sort of painted themselves into this corner of, 
well, if I give you one chip, then I have to give the whole class one chip. And pretty soon there's not going to be any chips left in my bag. And, and I think that's a little bit of a short-sighted way to approach negotiating with your best players. Um, and, you know, I think, I think with, with Jamal, you know, the thing that we have to remind ourselves as fans is Jamal Adams and Dwayne Brown didn't grow up dreaming of playing for the Seattle Seahawks. They, they are not, you know, I'm, I'm sure they've made their, their place and their impact in the community here, but you know, their motivations are most likely self and family oriented. And in the NFL, you only have one, two. And if you're very lucky, like Dwayne Brown, three chances to affect the trajectory of your family's generational income. And it is so crucial for these guys who have been spending their entire lives making all of these insane sacrifices to capitalize on this 1% of 1% ability that they have, that they maximize that. And, and these weeks leading up to the season every year, these are their leverage points. And so, you know, this is Dwayne Brown's last contract. And, and Rob brought up a great point that, yeah, you know, the team, I think with Dwayne has a little bit more reason to hold the line because they don't want to be left holding the bag with a bunch of dead money. If he does decide to retire, negotiating with 20 with 36 year old is eons different than trying to negotiate with 24 year old like they are with Adams. I think Adams holds a ton of leverage there, but uh, you know, the thing that gets lost in that conversation uh, with Adams is the franchise tag. I mean, Yes, Seattle sacrifices a lot of perceived leverage by trading two first-rounders and a third-rounder and a very good safety in Bradley McDougal to get Jamal Adams. And I am still in favor of that trade. Um, I don't think it's a slam-dunk win for them. It's a high-risk trade, but I I think if Jamal Adams continues to be the Jamal Adams that we've seen in his career so far, it'll end up justifying it. The challenge is, for Jamal's camp, Seattle can franchise tag him after this year, and then they can do it again. And what they would pay him during the course of that time comes out to exactly the same amount of money that they're offering him right now. So, you know, Seattle ultimately holds the Trump card, even though public perception seems to be that uh, Adams has all the leverage here. Yeah. It's the camp chancellor contract, which is like the tipping point of this one. Cause obviously within what, 16 months, he was retired. Obviously no fault through injury and everything, but that is the tipping point, which has kind of made him, Reluctant because since then they didn't pay Sherm, they didn't pay Earl, and now we've got this double barrel um, thing. They, they didn't pay KJ. There's, no one's paid KJ, but the Seahawks didn't pay KJ in March. But that's that's the, that was a tipping point, wasn't it, Adam? Yeah, I mean it's it's really interesting because you mentioned KJ Wright, uh, sorry Cam Chancellor, and I think I think Jackson, you mentioned that he's maybe your favorite ever Seahawk that you that you've seen, yeah. and. Um, Cam Chancellor had as many interceptions in the NFC Championship game and Super Bowl as Jamal Adams has in his entire career. Um, now, I don't want to mack on Adams too much, but it gets to a point where I'm not entirely sure who's leaked that information to the Seattle Times because I don't really think either side of it comes out particularly well reading it because Seattle look pretty pathetic if it's literally $2 million they're quibbling over. Um like, why would you do that? Just accelerate the process, get on with it, get him on the field. He needs to work on the system. And then you can work on Dwayne Brown. But then from Jamal Adams' standpoint, if he's being offered $1.5 million more than what the highest paid safety gets played, and 
you know, it, it strikes me, it's striking to me that he calls himself, you know, a defensive weapon. He doesn't want to be classed as a safety. But for me, there's times where he can't be classed as a safety because he's not that great at it compared to some of the, you know, top players that we've seen do it in Seattle. Um, so, Rob, I'm, I'm interested to know what you think about that, because I know that we're probably on slightly more of the same side with the Adams stuff. And I'm almost to the point where I don't really care what happens from here. Like we've, we've navigated through the draft where we really lose out big time with the first round or the third round pick. Now, obviously, you know, if we're comparing the apples to apples, I would rather have Jamal Adams on my team for the next three or four years than not. But equally, I'm almost starting to get a bit tired of the drama. And there's part of me that's like, well, if someone's offers me a second round pick for next year, but we'll put it this way. Would you, if, if, if Cleveland paid street free agent Jamal Adams $17 million a year for next year, I have a feeling that a lot of us would be laughing at that deal and thinking, what the hell are they doing? And there's part of me that thinks that are we throwing more bad money or more good money after bad, um, you know, and, and just compounding uh, a, a trade with you know, more money that we, that we don't actually need to spend on this guy? Well, I think I agree with the point that you made a little earlier, which was I just don't care. You know, it's... If, if Jamal Adams signs a contract in the next 10 minutes, I'll just go, mm, you know, well, whatever. You know, I don't care. And, you know, to be perfectly frank, I completely didn't know that the Seahawks are playing this weekend. I saw a tweet earlier and they were like, oh, it's, the, it's the first preseason game. I was like, okay, oh, right, who are they playing? I don't know. I, what is this? Like, I just, I don't, I don't think I've felt this way in a long, long time. I just kind of feel like, well, whatever, you know. I, I see the Seahawks right now as, you know, when you go to an airport and there's those like accelerated walkways where you stand on them and it, and it kind of helps you walk a bit faster. Do you know what I mean? Not wait to see where this is going. I just want yeah. to get that. I mean, I am so know. excited to see where this analogy goes. I'm honestly, I'm leaning forward to the front of my seat. Now you, well, you know, when you're on one of those and then there's always some kid who thinks it's really funny to walk the other way <laughs> and they don't go anywhere. They just kind of walk in and they're, like, and, they, and they're just stuck, you know, in that same position, but walking. That's the Seahawks. They're on one of those travelator things in the airport, going the opposite way to it's going, and they're kind of just stuck where they are. That's it. And really, whatever happens to Jamal Adams' contract, I mean, like, he's going to sign a contract. I mean, he's, he's going to get a deal done in the next, probably in the next week, I'd say. Certainly before week one, it's going to get done and, you know, be sorted. Um, I'm not excited. I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not excited about the team this year. I'm not. I, I don't, I've not felt that way in a long, long time. I just think that a massive change is something that needs to shake everything up. It needs a big change, this franchise, in order to, because I want to see them go further than they have done. I want to see, I want to go into a season thinking, yes. You know, th this is a, there is a real chance of contending at the very end of the season. And I think this team is stuck in the good, not great category. And I think it needs a shakeup. I think we're, we're, we're better than the Mike McCarthy Packers situation because the Packers were kind of like, you know, Rodgers would miss a few games and they'd be like eight and eight or eight, seven and one or something like that, or seven, eight and one and whatever. And the Seahawks have avoided all of that, largely because Russell Wilson plays every, has played every game in his career. Um, but yeah, I kind of feel somewhat like I'm ready for Matt Lafleur. you know? I'm kind of ready for that. Um, I'm ready for a, a bit of a change. And, I, and I'm going into this season 
expecting more of the same. Jackson, oh, that, the weather the that, weather is horrific here. Nothing to do with your question, by the way. That's just that's look, Jack, Jackson. It. The weather's terrible. England lost the Euros final last month. We're all struggling. Why. We're all struggling mentally, and I get the feeling that we might be, you know, putting a little bit of that onto our view of, of the season. Because I actually agree with Robin. I think Stu's more positive than me. But look, you've got beautiful sunshine behind you. You got a cigar in one hand, a scotch in the other. Boy, us make us feel yeah. make make us believe yeah. again, Jackson. Come on. Yeah, you got it. You got it. I, I mean, I, I, you guys are are every ounce as smart about this stuff as I am, and and probably have a few extra drops in the cup than me. But what I will say is, I I appreciate hearing that perspective because it's it's easy here to get caught up in the preseason excitement and and all of that stuff. That being said, uh, I. I am more optimistic about this team than I have been in a few years. I, I actually did see a shift uh, from my perspective this offseason um, <clears throat> with with Pete Carroll and, and with management and, and how they approach some things. You know, Russell Wilson flexed. And, and I think without them coming out and just saying it, I, I think the team sort of capitulated. You know, they didn't spend a lot of money in the offseason, but – the moves that they did make, you know, their big signings were bringing in a, a, an improvement at left guard and a tight end that is actually a weapon. You know, they, they gave Russell Wilson one of the more athletic tight ends who's uh, come out of or come into the NFL in the last number of years in Gerald Everett. He sounds like Shane Waldron was the guy that Russell Wilson wanted. He wasn't on anybody's radar. He his offense, which from all sounds of it and, and from talking with some guys on the beat, you know, as, as much as I think this is a, a kind of a, a, a douchey way to put it, but like off the record, right? Like just real talk. It sounds like there is a different vibe between Pete and the offensive coordinator. And it's a little bit less of a puppet show and, and a little bit more like Pete is really impressed with this shift. I, my concern with the Seahawks has been for years that not only is is Pete Carroll seems stubborn, but he seems to be stubborn about things now or over the past few years that run contrary to uh, how he coached the first five, six years in Seattle when they would go for it on fourth down a lot and would try and beat teams by three, four touchdowns if they could. And, and he was just so aggressive and so willing to be outside of the box that uh, I, I think that him and John Schneider, got really, really, really stung by the two years following their Super Bowl loss and how much leverage in the locker room they gave guys like Richard Sherman and Earl Thomas and Marshawn Lynch. And when those guys turned, they lost their locker room and they lost their team. I mean, you've got your best players who are the coolest guys in the room. I mean, yes, most players are going to defer to the coach, but they're, they're looking up to the coolest kids in class. And those players I mentioned were the coolest kids in that class. And when, when they're defying uh, management, when they're defying the teacher, you know, the teachers lost the classroom. And I think they're really, really hesitant to give that up. That being said, you know, they've made some moves that don't really fit the Pete Carroll ethos by bringing in Shane Waldron by, uh, um, you know, uh, being willing to run a quick offense that, you know, in training camp, all the reports out of training camp is most of these passes are seven to 15 yards, which has just been gone from this offense forever. And, you know, they're running hurry up when they don't need to, quote unquote, need to. I mean, I've got a bunch of friends who are 49ers and they love the fact that Seattle goes into the huddle and waits till there's six seconds on the play clock 
and there's no chance to make adjustments at the line because as soon as Russ starts going no huddle, their points per possession like doubles. And it, it's like Pete Carroll became this boxer that went from Mike Tyson looking to knock everybody out the first opportunity he could to someone that was just going to take it to the cards and, and hope they could win the 12th round and that'd be enough to win over the judges. And, and what we're seeing now is a different shift. You can look at their draft choice of uh, Trey Brown, who is a tiny cornerback. I mean, Seattle changed the way, Pete Carroll changed the way that the NFL drafts defensive backs. He drafted the biggest, longest, and perceived slowest uh, you know, cornerbacks in the NFL for years and turned them into amazing players. And then the NFL caught up. They figured out how to uh, exploit some of that. And now he went out and he said, he said, bringing in DJ Reed last year changed his view on smaller corners. And he went out and got a five, nine corner. And I think we're starting to see a little bit of malleability with Pete that hasn't been there in a little bit. And I think that Russell Wilson now has a locker room that is his. And that wasn't the case. I don't believe when you had Earl Thomas and Marshawn Lynch there and, and Richard Sherman and Doug Baldwin. And, and, you know, there's been lots of, allusions to how they would undercut Russ and his relationship with the coach and teacher's pet and all that kind of thing. So uh, I've seen shifts in that way. And when I was down at training camp last week, their whole seven on seven was quick passes and up tempo and no huddle. And, and that stuff to me is very, very exciting. Now, is it enough to close the gap between them and the best teams in the NFL? I don't know, but I think the Packers only have one more run in them. The saints are done. The Niners and, and Rams are still great you know, as far as their rosters go. But I think that the top of the NFC has gotten worse in the last year. And I, I think the Seahawks have gotten a little bit better. So I don't know that they're ready to leap into Super Bowl contention right now. But if Jamal Adams and Dwayne Brown are playing 15, 16, or 17 games this year, uh, I do think they have a puncher's chance, which I don't think has been the case the last three seasons. Uh, I agree. But also, about a week ago, I said that um, I hadn't really paid much attention. We didn't pod for, like, 10 weeks, Adam, or so. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't really pay much attention, but now the last week I've started paying attention and like I was upbeat, looking forward to it, excited about Walder and Everett. And yeah, uh, the last week, now I am paying attention again. It's kind of dwindled it a bit. But yeah, I completely agree with Jackson. I've said on uh, with Paul Gallant a few weeks ago, I think all four, uh, there's a difference between making the playoffs and making uh, wherever the Super Bowl is. All, all four NFC West teams, I think, uh, will make the playoffs. And I just think, because I think it is going to be an iron sharp as iron thing, but why I'm positive, the positivity has kind of dwindled ever so slightly because, like I said at the start, it's a week and absolutely nothing has changed and nothing seems to be... Um, yeah, it's just... It's, the more I pay attention, the more it dwindles, I guess, Adam. Yeah, Rob, why don't you pick up on that? Because uh, you mentioned to me on uh messenger that you uh you know, weren't in the uh in the highest of spirits i think we've got a little bit of an inkling of that already from some of the stuff you've said but um it's weird because i i look at this team you know we, we've said this for a long a long time i think i've said this on your show before that it's just quite bizarre going into a season with one definitely good linebacker one definitely good secondary player in Quandra Diggs as it stands. You assume Jamal Adams will, will make up for that. And whilst I don't think the Seahawks have holes in the roster because all the holes have been filled, it sometimes feels like it's a little bit of like a, a lake that's frozen over 
but there's every chance that you walk on a couple of soft spots and you end up getting very, very wet very quickly. Uh, and that, that's my slight concern specifically for the defense think, this year. Adam, do you think mm-hmm. that there are teams where that's not the case? I mean, outside of maybe Kansas City, Tampa Bay, I mean, isn't no. that the case for most You're contenders? Spot on, 100% right. I think the problem with Seattle and whilst I think what you've said is, is really pertinent about the shift that they've made. And if, if, if I had faith that the Seahawks would try and win games by three, four touchdowns, it would matter to me a lot less. But I do think that they enjoy in a you know perverse way those win those those close wins as if that means more as if you get you know two win columns two wins in the column for uh, a close win and it does slightly concern me that if you the more the cl- the more we play with fire eventually you will get burned and that's what worries me about you know Akello Witherspoon potentially having to make a, a big time play in the last minute of a game which he wouldn't necessarily have to do at Kansas because Mahomes is put 45 on the board how to that point how crazy is it it used to be if seattle you know there was a five-year stretch if seattle had a one or two score lead in the fourth quarter it was a wrap like it Mm -hmm. was a wrap and now (laughs) it's been like half a decade since i've had any faith in any lead that they've had at any point of any game of any season absolutely yeah rob you uh you you take over from me because uh Again, I thought we might be sort of tag team in this one a little bit. Well, you know, I think firstly, we, we can talk about, you know, the state of the NFC. I, I, what I would say and encourage people to, to remember is that there are always teams that emerge and teams that maybe you don't expect to. I mean, who really anticipated Josh Allen's season in 2020 and, and the Bills would become a legit contender? Uh, the Browns worked their way into a point where if they handled their business against the Chiefs in the, the divisional round, they, they may well have been in a Super Bowl last year. You know, they absolutely destroyed the Steelers who started the season, what, like 11-0 and or something like that, or 10-0, and and looked strong, and then they fell away. And then you look in the NFC, and I remember watching the Rams absolutely hammer the Bucks in Tampa Bay um, about 10, 11 games in, and people were wondering, can Arians and Brady coexist and, and all of this? And who, who remembers that now? Everyone just remembers that they won the Super Bowl. Um, so we could sit here and say, well, you know, there, there doesn't look like there's that much of a threat in the NFC. And then you had the season begins and, you know, the Case Keenum-led Minnesota Vikings were one game away from the Super Bowl a few years ago. You kind of... Who knows what's going to happen? I think with Adam's point, what the, the sort of the concern that I have is I look at this roster and you, you've got Russell Wilson, you've got DK Metcalf, you've got Tyler Lockett. You, you, there, are, there are strengths to this team, of course. Bobby Wagner, you know, some, I have mixed views on Jamal Adams. Many people would consider him a massive positive. But then you look at things like Cal Fuller could be the centre this year. We're a few months removed from a superb centre draft. We don't go in that direction. We pay Ethan Posick $3 million. He's injured. Cal Fuller could be the center. Maybe Cal Fuller is going to be great. Or maybe Cal Fuller is going to be like BJ Finney and Drew Nowak and all those other crappy centers that we've seen for the Seahawks who cost them a game early in the season. And then we're all wondering how the hell that happened. Cornerback. DJ Reed was Seattle's best cornerback last year. He's currently injured, which means that if he, um, nobody knows how injured he is because Pete hasn't taught for two days. Um, what if he misses time and you, you start the season? And this is what it'll be. If there was a game now 
Tray flowers one side, a kello with a spoon the other. That's scary. You look at uh, the second round picks not healthy. There's Kobe Parkinson is has apparently been Seattle's best tight end in camp, injured. Gerald Everett, a lot of people are excited about Gerald Everett. I get that. I understand why. Because he's big money. He, 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 he sounds great, doesn't it? He? He's worked with Waldron before. His best season in LA was 417 yards and a touchdown a year ago. With Waldron in the Rams system. And a Rams system that does do a better job of you know, focusing on the tight end than Seattle's offense has ever done. They go and trade for Jimmy Graham. It took them three years to decide he wasn't a blocking tight end. You know, the Seahawks have never done a good job under Carroll of saying the tight ends are going to be a feature in this offense. And we're saying, well, Waldron will do it. But Everett played in the Waldron offense and he didn't have the big numbers. So there's a lot of things here that make me think, well, do you know what? Of course, the Seahawks are not a bad team. They'll never be bad with Russell Wilson. They'll win 10, 11, 12, 13 games next year with Russell Wilson because he's Russell Wilson. And they have DK Metcalf, who is obviously on the brink of probably becoming the, the best paid receiver in the league. The only way he won't be in a year's time, probably, is because DeAndre Hopkins' contract is so unique that they may not even manage to get above that just because it was so eye-catching. Um, there are other positives to do. I'm not a big fan of the running back depth. And I, and I think we've seen that, you know, despite all the talk of running, running games, a Travis Homer or a DJ Dallas-led running attack is awful. You know, that last year they had to go and get Bo Scarborough off his couch. You know, he was watching a box set or something on Netflix and then he's playing in against the Cowboys the next week. You know, it's, it's things like this that just made me think, yeah, do you know what? Th this is going to be more of the same. This is going to be more of the same and it's going to be frustrating and it's going to be predictable. And I just, I, I'm at a point now where I have to see the Seahawks win a divisional round game <laughs> to believe that it's possible. Totally. Totally. And I think, yeah. I think all of that is, is really legit. And I, and I don't want my, you know, uh, <laughs> optimism and, and perhaps naivete to overshadow that these are really, really legitimate points. You know, this is that part of the season where we're all on the other side of a prism and the light is shining through it. And we all end up in a, in a different spectrum, you know, and, and I'm, I'm seeing things through one color, uh, you know, Nathan or, uh, Adam and Rob are seeing it through, you know, the light that's come through that prism is hitting them in a different color, Stu a different color and, and all of that. And it's, it's so hard because we won't know until, until the game start. And, and to Rob's point, we're going to have new teams pop up. I think, I think the Vikings are, are sneaky, scary. I think the bears are, I mean, the bears have put together a super bowl contender roster around bad quarterbacks for a long time. And, They've got a lot of talent in the house. If Justin Fields is who I think he is, which is essentially Deshaun Watson. You know, they're going to be a problem for a long time. If Trey Lance is Josh Allen, that division is going to be on lock for them for a bit. And so, you know, there's a lot that we just, that we just don't know yet. My guess is if we were as close to the other teams that we are tending to say are better than Seattle right now, and we apply the same level of scrutiny. I, I think there's going to be holes there as well with, with most of them, you know, what Tampa Bay is doing and Kansas city, those, those are pinnacle franchises. They have, 
continuity and a franchise ethos and enough top level talent combined with depth, great drafting, phenomenal contract management. They, they are separating themselves. I think those two teams from the rest of the league. And I, and, and I actually think Baltimore's right behind them with Buffalo and Cleveland on the come up. Thank God the AFC is becoming the stronger conference for the first time in 20 years, but it's, it's something where it's just so hard to say. I mean, this team with Dwayne Brown and Jamal Adams and, you know, Gerald Everett and Gabe Jackson, all playing at, you know, the peak of their powers can be as good as anybody. We haven't even talked about Carlos Dunlap yet and the huge impact that he had on that defensive line. And the one thing that I will say, and I, I am no Seahawks front office apologist over the last five years. I certainly don't want to come off as that. I don't think they've been infallible by any stretch, but I've been really upset with them a few times for not extending certain players. I excoriated them for not giving Earl Thomas a third contract. Not that my opinion matters, but how, how right was that decision in hindsight? I mean, they were seeing things that we just weren't seeing. The guy was going off the deep end. I killed him for not signing, uh, re-signing Jadavian Clowney for, for limping in with a two-year, $26 million offer to him. And he goes out, goes to the team he wanted to, to play for the defensive coordinator he wanted to on an up-and-coming team and gets zero sacks. You know, we wanted them to get Everson Griffin. He did nothing. There were all of these players that I wanted them to spend big money on, and they didn't. And I think they've actually put together a pretty good defensive line. And, you know, uh, I wanted them to bring back Richard Sherman, and I think it's a good thing that they didn't. And so, uh, you know, when, when he first left, I'd obviously love to have him now. But, uh, you know, I at this point, I think I do kind of have to defer to them a little bit that if – they are going to play hardball with certain players. They do have a reason for doing it. Now, this is not them offering Golden Tate $10 million less than what he can get elsewhere. This is not them offering uh, Jadavian Clowney $15 million less than what he can get elsewhere. It, it sounds like they're probably pretty qu- close with Dwayne and, and Jamal, but um, they, they have earned a little bit of benefit of the doubt from me because they are seeing these guys every day. And if, if they're holding a line, they at least have a good reason for doing so. Can I ask you a question, uh, guys? Do you think that Pete Carroll and Ken Norton Jr. are capable of putting a season of consistently strong and creative defense together? And I say creative in there as well, because if they are adjusting their scheme to use more bare fronts to make the most of Jamal Adams' skill set, then blitzing is going to be a big feature of this defense again. Now, they kind of had one blitz last year, and they did it again and again and again. And you could call the play as soon as you saw it happen with Bobby Wagner and Jamal Adams' actions. Is Are these two individuals who are going to be in charge of this defense creative enough? And do they have the chops to take this defense to a level that it has not been probably since 2014? Because it's been poor for a few years, hasn't it? There's no chance that they're going to be as good as that defense. Zero chance. I don't think there's. I don't think there's one team in the NFL that will be that good. I forget, think that, not, forget, forget that I said that. I don't mean as good as the LOB. I sure, mean, sure, sure. I mean, I mean, can they be? Because they've they've got worse and worse and worse and worse. I mean, is this year mm-hmm. going to be a year where they can get back to a standard which is not getting worse every year? If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that. 
you know, you asked a, a really astute two-part question with Pete Carroll and Ken Norton. I think it's a one-part answer. Um, I don't think we've seen anything from Ken Norton that suggests any of that. It's whether Pete Carroll can do it. And it's whether Pete Carroll can and is willing to rewire a 40-year journey that led him to creating a defense and drafting a defense that led the NFL in uh, defensive scoring for four years in a row, which has never happened prior and will never happen again. That is for a defensive minded coach, the guy who played defensive back, who came up through the NFL coaching defensive backs, um, that is, it's really hard. I would imagine to spend an entire life building a masterpiece like that, see it come to fruition and then just believe that I have to go in a different direction in order to be successful again. And there's no question that he has to, there's no question that he has to, I wouldn't be surprised. B Carroll's a battleship. He's not a speedboat. He's not going to turn around, uh, quickly. And, and I do actually think that last year we started to see that turn and I don't know that they could all of a sudden go from their static defense that they've been running for eight years to something that's super dynamic in the middle of the season. I do think they were willing to adjust as well as they could within the confines of, I mean, guys aren't practicing much when you get into November, it's all about preservation of health. These guys aren't going out. They're not learning new plays. It's really, really hard to make uh, changes middle of the season. And it's always so impressive when you see a team that's able to do it. Nothing about Ken Norton tells me that he can do that. It's whether or not Pete Carroll is willing to install a different ethos in that defense in order to make it happen. And if he saw something with adding some blitzing, which they never did before with moving uh, 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 Jamal Adams around and, and some of that stuff. I, I actually think uh, Jordan Brooks allows them to do a lot more with Bobby Wagner than they could do before because he's so dynamic and so capable of overlapping with Bobby Wagner's uh, assignments that it frees Bobby up to be a little bit more dynamic. My hope is that they are using a, uh, a full off season to incorporate some of this stuff. But um, I mean, I, I would say there's a less than 50% chance, Rob, that it happens, but I, I really don't think it's like a 5% or a 10% chance either. I, I, it does sound like there's some effort at least to uh, uh, adjusting to the new NFL. I, I, yeah, I think I agree with that. I, I think there's a chance. I, thought, I think it also kind of explains maybe their approach, especially up front, because obviously they've, they've brought back Carsten, they re-signed Puna Ford, they've brought back again, our words, and you've got you'd hope some life in Daryl Taylor, which obviously is just all usual August um, training camp chats. And th- there is chance that they, that it could improve, but yeah, I think it's I don't have much faith or belief or in Ken Norton, but also it, it's how much Ken Norton kind of matters because it is as Jackson right. said, Pete Pete's defense is Pete's. Everything. He's just he's just got the guy next to him holding the the play sheet and the headset. And, 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 sorry, guys. I mean, the, the the interesting thing is, um, you know, last year the the sl- the slogan was obviously let Russ cook, but in a way, over the course of seventeen games, let Jamal cook was probably a much more scheme defining system uh, than anything else. And it's funny you mentioned Jadavian Clowney. Um, in a way, I would have loved to have seen him afforded the luxuries that Jamal Adams was afforded uh, in their first scenes in Seattle. It, w- it might have been incredible to see him. Maybe could, he could have put 16 games like the one he, he put together in San Francisco. Um, yeah. And like the last thing I could ever even profess to be is a tape guy. So what I'm about to say is probably absolute nonsense and by, by my own admission. But based on my gut and what I'm watching when I'm watching these games is that the passer rating uh, when Jamal Adams blitz and didn't get home was 128, which I think would be an NFL 
passing record across a season. Um, that's suboptimal. And if you assume that once they pay Jamal, they're probably going to try even harder to set the table for him. The worry for me is that, and this goes back to my last point, Jackson, when I was talking about, you know, Akella Witherspoon and the, you know, the, the linebackers that don't know the scheme. If you had, you know, prime 2014 Seattle defense, I could almost get on board with one player having like a free role to do whatever the hell he wants. My worry going into this year, and it's probably going to be, you know, something they can, you know, smooth out over the course of the year, but it wouldn't stun me if like the Titans game looked like a complete disaster because there's just so many new guys and so few of the, the old trusty guard in there um, trying to cover for ultimately, you know, 10 or 15 snaps a game where one guy is given a free role to do what the hell he wants. I, you know, I'll say to that point, I think it's, I think it's a great point. And, and I, I want to credit Rob. One of the things I appreciate about Rob so much is he asks the right questions. And, and I think this is a really pertinent one. And there's, there's two, two things about it that I do think are relevant here is one. Uh, and I can't remember the name of it, but Pete Carroll brought back his, basically uh, he calls him his conscience. There's a coach that he had. Potato. Mr. Potato, yeah. potato, yeah. Carl Smith, potato. Right. Thank you, Carl Smith. And, and, you know, he was there to keep hate Pete from getting uh, too emotional during games. And, and I mean, head coaches have so much that they have to monitor during the course of the game that it, it really is almost too much to ask them to decide in the moment, whether going for it on fourth down is the right thing or whether to uh, review a play is the right thing or to call a timeout is the right thing. And to have just a coach whose job it is, is to tell them, man, no, this is the thing to do. And to have that trust, I think is a big deal. I think that's a, a, an admission on Pete Carroll's part that like, yeah, I'm at my best when I have this guy in my ear and they made the effort to bring him back. Um, I, and, and to Adam's point, which I think is also a good one. I, I agree. I think there could be some really ugly uh, performances at the beginning of the season. And honestly, that doesn't bother me that much. Tampa Bay Buccaneers couldn't stop anybody for 10 games last year. Not at all. And then they went out and shut down one of the greatest offenses in history in the Super Bowl because they adjusted. And, and I do think it's important to look at a season as a living, breathing organism, something that that changes as personnel changes, as injuries mount up, as you get tape on opponents and all of these kinds of things. So um, e- even if there are some poor performances from the defense early on, um, I, I do think that uh, – there's, there's a chance to improve as if there is indeed a, a tweak in defensive philosophy. It might just take a little time to take hold. And I always come back to this one example. The year that the Seahawks lost to the Patriots in the Super Bowl, I think it was week four. It was a Monday night game, and they lost by four touchdowns to the Chiefs. And Bill Belichick was answering questions afterwards whether Tom Brady was done. This is seven, eight years ago. And – and people are like, maybe this is the time. We've, we've reached the end of the line with the Patriots. They just got blown out by this hot new team and, and all of these things. And they went out and won the Super Bowl. And so, uh, you know, there's lots of examples of bad defenses that stay bad. But I don't think Seattle will be bad. And I think that if they do struggle, and you use the example of Tennessee, I think Tennessee is an extremely difficult offense to stop. I think they're going to do crazy things on offense this year. Um, especially if their new offensive coordinator from all, all reports is going to keep the same Arthur Smith philosophy. And then you just add Julio Jones to that. They, I think they're going to make a lot of defenses look bad, but I don't think that that will necessarily be an indictment of the team 
and how they'll look come November, December. Yeah, I, I think some some fair, fair valid points. Um, well, I I, th- I think that the Seahawks will have some good wins and some. I, I th- what we'll see, I think, will be very similar. I think that there there will be probably be opponents that you can put a ring around as you as you go through the schedule and you think, yep, yeah, that's going to be one of those difficult games. And uh, and I, I think we may see it might not be quite as bad as um, the the. The Buffalo Road game a year ago, but there might be a couple like that, especially early in the season. I must admit that Tennessee game does it is scary, mainly because Ryan Tannehill is exactly the kind of you know middling quarterback who has a great game against Seattle, um, and that happened during the LOB years as well. And when you throw in Julio and AJ Brown and King Henry and everything like that, um, it, it's going to be really tough to stop them. And I think it's going to be a very nice early test for the Seahawks to see where they're at. Um, I think with stuff like the uh, and the reference to the Patriots and and that was the famous oh, we're, we're on to Cincinnati post game press conference for Bill Belichick after that game that gets quoted back over and over again. I suppose yeah. the the only um, the only kind of like counter I'd have to that is that it, it's it is simply that I don't think there's anybody quite quite like the Belichick and Brady. Uh, of course, duo, and I, I personally have lost a lot of faith in, and and I always feel like you need to qualify this with Pete Carroll because obviously everybody loves Pete Carroll, everybody will always respect Pete Carroll, everyone will always, you know, speak of Pete Carroll as a Seahawks legendary coach. I, I don't feel like. I don't have the faith anymore, really. I, I just don't. I think we've kind of seen it enough. I think, you know, when I was talking to, to Jake and Stacey the other day, she kind of quoted something back to me that I'd written and then, and then threw in the word hubris. And, and I think that's what you see a lot from the Seahawks these days. I think they believe in their own hype a little too much. I think that they think when issues come along that, yeah, it's fine. We've been here before. We know what we're doing. We'll get through this. It's fine. Oh, you know, we haven't addressed the pass rush in March. You know, when it gets to September, there'll be somebody there for us. We'll be okay. You know, you know, it's always that kind of stuff. And Pete looks like he's having a whale of a time at training camp again. And he's got a new podcast and, you know, he's changed somebody's life with some motivational words and all this. And I kind of think, do you know what? I just, I don't know. It to me, it just feels a little bit like you, you can kind of sense sometimes when you're coming to the end, and the Seahawks just scream Arsenal under Arsene Wenger. And I know that that is the the, the comparison we I come to every time, but it just there isn't a better comparison for me. And I and I dread the thought that it's going to go the same way where we're going to have podcasts like the one we're on now, and many the ones that I'm on. Are, where you have the whole Wenger out thing going on and on and on until finally the, you know, the, the whole thing is finally just put to rest and a decision is made and the axe and the, you know, the guillotine falls and it's gone. And, and I can, for me, that feels like it's around the corner, especially if the Seahawks don't achieve what they do this year. And if Russell Wilson decides, actually, I'm going to revisit that saga from, you know, the one that, that was media created a few months ago. The one that the, 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 the Pete, the Pete Carroll didn't feel he needed to talk about for months and end. They just let that become a massive thing. And we'll just, you know, not talk about it. Well, if that comes back again this year, then Seahawks fans are going to be placed in a very awkward position where they have to decide what's best for the franchise, Pete or Russell Wilson. And I don't think 
maybe I'm wrong. I don't think a lot of people are going to sign with a head coach in that instance because you can find a coach. You generally can't find many Russell Wilsons. It's it's so true. And, you know, the thing that goes unsaid in all of these conversations, because <laughs> this time every year, I feel how I'm feeling right now. And every year around December, I feel how Rob's feeling. And and I, I appreciate Rob holding the line. Um, you know, I, I love, I love February through August, Pete Carroll. I think he is as good as it gets at creating and maintaining the type of culture that can, to use the phrase, win forever. You know, there. yes, Russell Wilson is the number one reason that they never have losing seasons. But Pete Carroll is not absent from that formula. The question is, can he still win big playoff games and, and, you know, it's not Russell Wilson losing most of these games. Granted, he was terrible against the Rams last year, but most of, most of the playoff games they've lost, Russell Wilson's been very, very, very good. And you can point to really obvious coaching decisions that I believe have cost them those games. So it, it'll be interesting. I, I, I might be drinking the Kool-Aid. I, I try not to be that guy. I might be drinking the Kool-Aid that maybe we're finally seeing the battleship turn around with P. Carroll. But the thing that we don't talk about with this discussion is that Paul Allen's not around anymore. And Paul Allen was the owner that you dream about. He was willing to understand that Jim Mora Jr. wasn't the guy. He thought Jim Mora Jr. was the guy. He had him sit in Mike Holmgren's pocket, ready to take over. And then the second Pete Carroll became available, when everyone was saying, oh, Pete Carroll, is he couldn't make it in the NFL. This rah-rah cheerleader bullshit ain't going to work with grown men, all this stuff. He brought him in after one year of Mora and, and the rest was history. And he was very, very hands-on and very willing to spend, turn the VMAC into what it is, which is a huge recruiting tool with free agents and all of that kind of thing. And, and I don't get the sense that Jody and the board are nearly as involved. And I think Paul Allen wouldn't hesitate to move on from Pete Carroll. But I don't know that that leverage exists with ownership or the willingness exists with ownership anymore. You would be insane to choose a 70-year-old Pete Carroll over a 33-year-old Russell Wilson for the future of your franchise. That is absolute abject lunacy. But Pete Carroll now has, he is the president of that franchise. He is the CEO of one of the most valuable companies in the United States. We These aren't, when we talk about NFL franchises, we're not talking about a hardware store. We're talking about Disney. We're talking about Apple. We are talking about massive, insanely profitable money-making machines. And leadership changes at the top of those are really, really difficult to to do. And you need a really forceful owner willing to make that move. And I don't know that Seattle has that anymore. So also, you are a Timberwolves fan. It seems to be a somewhat similar story. It was just kind of someone is asleep at the wheel above the plane aspect of trailblazers, that franchise. Not Timber- trailblazers. Tra- trailblazers not Timberwolves. Oh, yeah, sorry, hey, sorry, hey, sorry, hey, sorry, hey. sorry, 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 sorry. Totally. So, so yeah, so full disclosure, I'm a, I'm a huge basketball honk, which is not, not super popular up here because the NBA absolutely robbed the, the song. So you can do a whole uh, podcast on, on how that wasn't just one team moving cities out. That, that was a hatchet job for sure. And so I have a hard time finding anyone to talk NBA with, but, even while the Sonics were here, I've been a Blazers fan my whole life. It's also a team that was owned by Paul Allen, continues to be owned by the Allen family. And you're seeing, you're seeing the same thing. You're seeing uh, a GM that is clearly not championship caliber, 
at odds with a player who very much is, who is the Russell Wilson of that franchise and Damian Lillard. They're running into the same exact thing right now where it just feels like they're treading water and are willing to let the best player in franchise history like Russell Wilson is play out the string and have a bunch of winning seasons that end in the first or second round of the playoffs. It is very, very frustrating. Yeah. Um, one thing, one aspect of the team we have been relatively in context positive about is the defensive line, which obviously was in um, the news the last few days with the departure, um, which should have been, what, 12 weeks ago, Adam Alden Smith has released. Um, there seems to be a bit of uh, fog and mist around the reasons and uh, how it all went down, but it, it it shouldn't have happened in August, should it? The whole thing I found quite frustrating and I'm quite interested in Rob as an Englishman's perspective and Jackson as a, a Seattle native perspective on this. Um, for me, I don't want to dwell too long on it, but for me, part of the reason you support a team is that you're proud of what the team stands for. And, you know, you wear a crest on your chest or on your hat with a, a degree of pride that what they stand for uh, is a set of morals that you can subscribe to. And uh, John Schneider very famously said, when Frank Clark was uh, drafted, I think that, you know, we wouldn't even dream of touching a player who had any domestic violence issues. And look, for me, you know, th- 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 those not, are- it's just not something you can say out loud. When you're Agreed. But, and, and he had no, no one asked him to say that he chose outwardly to say that. And let's be honest, it was a missed, it was a misquote. And at some point he was always going to make a move that belied those words And for me to do all of that for a guy like Alden Smith, who probably wasn't going to make the team anyway, for me, it coughed up stuff that I just didn't think was necessary for like the juice was nowhere near worth the squeeze for that. And, you know, we follow the team from 5,000 miles away and I'm sure every fan of every team has that where you kind of feel that your team is a little bit better than everyone else when it comes to morals. And for me, when Jaron Reed and Frank Clark, et cetera, go to Kansas city, to join Tyreek Hill. I'm not overly fussed, to be honest, because as naive as it is, I'm 33, I should know better. The humanity of a player does mean a little bit more to me than not. I'm not just going to treat them as robots. What they are as people does matter to me. Um, And it pissed me off that they even made the deal in the first place. And then to cut the guy yesterday, it all just feels to me like, what was the point Um, to bring all this up for a guy like this? Now, Jackson, you're living it in Seattle does anyone even care about that? Or is that just something that's from 5,000 miles away is just, uh, you know, highly sensitive, you know, overly sensitive um, given kind of the, the more, you know, abstract nature we have following this team. Adam, it is extremely gracious of you to lend leverage to my perspective based on the fact that I'm only a hundred miles away instead of 5,000, but. Well, you're you in know, it, you're I, in I, it. As in you talk I, to people that are in it. Sure. Sure. I, yes, yes. May, maybe proximity helps my perspective in, in some way. The, the feeling with most of the people that I've talked to when Alden Smith came in is yes, it Alden Smith went through a period of his life. That was horrific. I mean, the guy, the guy was troublesome on every level and, and he was, you know, to be honest, there was a three-year stretch where he was probably one of the 25 best football players on the planet. And that's enough to take the risk on for a lot of people. Uh, and, and he obviously ultimately wasn't worth it, couldn't stick with the Niners, couldn't stick with the Raiders, and now can't stick with, with Seattle. The, the sense I'm getting from those close to the team is that this didn't have anything to do with football, with him not being, um, you know, it, 
Pete Carroll is, is a deep D line coach. That's his philosophy for roster building. He likes to rotate guys through, keep them fresh. I think Alden Smith was hundred percent going to make this team. Um, I, I do think this has to do with something behind the scenes. Uh, it was low risk. He also paid his penance. You know, I, I am hesitant if trying to put myself in the position of building a Super Bowl caliber NFL team, which I think is probably the hardest management goal in all of American sports. Uh, you do have to take some risks and you have to be willing to give guys some second chances. And, and Alden Smith got penalized and it cost him the prime of his career. And I think if there was anything left, it, it, it was worth it. It was a very minimal uh, salary commitment. If he did stick, um, I think they had every intention of him making the team, but you're right. They painted themselves into an impossible corner by, by essentially saying, you know, we're, we're not going to deal with anyone that has uh, a, a hint of this on their, on their record. It's just, it's the old quote. And I don't mean this to be a cop out on the morality of things. It's the old quote that you're not going to win with 53 choir boys in the NFL. And, and these guys are, are absolute gladiators. They are the warriors of our day. Um, they are dealing with an insane amount of pressure, both on their performance. Like I like to think I'm pretty good at my job, but I'm not infallible. And there have been times I messed up and I couldn't imagine if my mess up became the talking point for 10 million people for the next week afterwards. Right. And these guys are all dealing with some degree of CTE and all of that stuff. So I, I, I think I have a little bit more wiggle room when it comes to who these guys are, mostly because we don't know. And, and I'll to be clear, it's, it's only the domestic stuff that I have, like totally. you know, the drug rehabilitation. Totally. That is in a way that's great for him to come through. It's only the domestic violence stuff that actually rankles with me on this. At, at, and, and I think that's legit. And I, and I, I, I plead with you guys and anyone listening not to, hear this as me excusing any of that um at, at at all but i you know i i learned to let go of needing my heroes in sports to be um amazing human beings either and and not because i don't think that that's something that they should uh, uh strive to achieve or or um isn't important but it's just because we don't know i thought you know we all thought eugene robinson was the greatest guy ever you know he was nfl man of the year three times and he got caught soliciting a prostitute the night before the biggest game of his career and he was the best player on a super bowl defense he wasn't in the game because he was in jail and they got blown out uh marvin harrison same thing Marvin Harrison was held as the paradigm of professionalism and off the field conduct and, you know, great hall of fame player didn't do anything extra. And it turns out he almost definitely shot a dude while running an underground series of nightclubs in Philadelphia. Like we just don't know who these guys are. And, and I just got tired of losing my heroes. So I, I, I tend to pay a little bit less attention to what my perception of who they are off the field is. I, I think that's, that about kind of sums up how I feel when it comes to making that risk reward decision between bringing in a guy with a checkered past uh, and, and, and weighing that risk versus the talent. Well, well I, I'm sorry. I was distracted by uh, Adam mentioning that Jaron Reed and Frank Clark play for the chiefs now. And um, I'd forgotten about that. And, and it, it reminded me that, that they're going to line up Chris Jones, Frank Clark, and John Reed next year, and the, the Seahawks could have had all of those guys. Well, maybe and, not Frank Clark this year. <laughs> maybe not, yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. The, the thing that took my mind off it was thinking about Great Britain in the Olympics, so that was all right. But, um, 
Yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't know. I, I always kind of avoid these conversations. I've never really written about this kind of stuff because it is so... There's pin- nothing yeah. to gain from it. No, people fairness. have a lot of opinions. And, and, and the minute you side on either end of this, there's always somebody desperate to be offended by what you've said or to take uh, you know, a, a very aggressive stance against what you've said, whether you are in favour of the Seahawks signing Alden Smith or against. And for me, I, I kind of... I, th- I think there are certain players that you obviously don't want on your team. The rest of it, I, you know, I treat it as a sports team and, um, and, and Adam, yeah, specific to the domestic violence thing. The thing that I have to try and keep in mind with all of this too, is I am, and, and, you know, at risk of diving too deep into social issues on, on a football podcast is I am a man. I am not threatened by the prospect of domestic or sexual violence the way that a woman is. And I I just have to be cognizant of that. I I have a very limited personal perspective when it comes to that, because I'm never going to do it and I'm never going to be presumably a victim of it. And, or at least the chances of that are very, very low. And, uh, and that's just not the case for, you know, half of our population. I think probably, It was such a source of pride to hear John Schneider's now miss comment that to have it kind of yeah. come backwards on you. It feels like, oh, that's kind of a bit of a shame because it was something I really clung to as like quite a nice thing to do. But I guess there's probably no room for niceties in, in sports, Stu. No. Also, uh, Jackson talking of uh, letting go of heroes. That's what Adam's been dealing with for the last six weeks. Uh, in the process yeah. of as well. So. Oh, is this um, something? Has there been something going on with Harry Kane? No, there's <laughs> nothing going on. I will go to bed and leave you all to it. Too fragile um, for this. Uh, well, uh, uh, anything else happened last week? I don't think so. Uh, spare in the bin. Yeah, let's on. do it. I got got a couple of good ones. Okay, before we go this week, just quickly back next week, Rob, your 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 day job, your pay job, your is a journalist. What did you make of the Jason Garrett? Call me coach. Thing. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I saw that actually. Um, is interesting. I surprised actually because Jason Garrett actually gave one of the greatest answers I've ever heard at a press conference. When, um, much to his surprise, he was asked, "What is the all-time great breakfast at a Dallas Cowboys press conference?" <laughs> to which he gave a very detailed and thorough answer, um, which I appreciated um, as an observer of that interview. So to hear him sort of start lecturing people on call me coach and stuff like this. I mean, having interviewed a million coaches and players over the years, um, predominantly English football, I've called every single one by their first name. Now, if you interview a, a chair, a football chairman over here, you generally, as a sign of respect, would call them chairman. I think that's just what journalists generally do, unless you have a personal relationship with that person. Um, it's just the, you know, the, I think that, that might be some kind of British, you know, formal way of addressing a chairman, you know, you would say chairman, you know, whatever. Um, although I always used to refer to Milan Mandaric as Milan, but that's because he was a slightly different chairman than everybody else. <laughs> and that he was, he was, he was quite willing to have a chat with you. Um, yeah, so I would always refer to a coach by his first name. No one has ever pulled me up on that. I mean, over here, we don't, we don't call managers coaches, so they don't expect to be called coach. Um, but then when I asked Pete Carroll a few questions at the London games, I, asked, I referred to him as coach. 
And I referred to the, I mean, I remember famously turning to Chris Carson and asking him for a, a, an interview. And he said no. And he was then moments later speaking to two uh, younger female journalists. And I just felt quite snubbed about that. Um, so you, I would call the players by their first name, but Pete Carroll, I referred to as coach. So I, it's a, it's a difficult one because I think actually if I was going to interview Jason Garrett, just because of the way it is in America, I probably would call him coach. But over here, I never would do that. So well, guess what I'm saying is I haven't got a nothing clue. <laughs> cool. No, I've, I've got a, a tiny bit of uh, uh, personal anecdote that I can put in this. I was – fortunate enough to uh, make the football team at Pacific Lutheran University here. And uh, I played for a legendary Hall of Fame coach named Frosty Westering and he won four national titles. I think he retired as the eighth winningest coach in college football history. And, and uh, I, you know, I was, I was in college to play baseball, but, you know, Frosty had uh, announced that it was going to be his, my junior year announced that it was going to be his final year. Um, and, uh, I was living with a number of football players at the time and I decided, Hey, what the heck? I didn't play in high school. It'd be fun to try out. And, uh, and so I tried out just to try and be a part of that team. Cause I saw what a huge impact Frosty had on them and, and was fortunate enough to make the team and all that stuff. And I got to spend one really amazing year seeing ESPN and sports illustrated and all of these different organizations come and, and pay tribute to Frosty during this. And, and the thing that made Frosty amazing wasn't just the wins. It was how he, how he approached things. And his whole thing is if you called him frosty and you called the offensive coordinator, Scott, and you, if you called him coach, they'd call you player. And his whole thing was just, this is a personal relationship between us and I'm, I'm the coach, but you call me frosty. That's who I am. And you know, that, that, that program is so unique. Coaches carried the seniors' uh, equipment to practice. Seniors carried the freshmen's equipment to practice. It was like completely upside down, right? There was no initiation as a freshman where you had to get the shit kicked out of you until you establish yourself. It was like, it was all about servant leadership. And, and that has stuck with me so much. And so now when I see the Jason Garrett thing, I'm just like, come on, man, like, get, give me a break. Don't, don't take yourself so seriously. You're not good enough to be calling out something on that. Yeah, but First Jackson, do, do you think if he was called Frosty that he wouldn't mind as much rather than Jason? <laughs> yeah, maybe. That's quite the maybe, name. Maybe. And I love, you know, one of my favorite coaches, and I, I don't think he gets brought up enough when we talk about the best coaches in the NFL. One of my favorite coaches is Ron Rivera. And shortly after uh, the Jason Garrett thing, is, I think it was the very next press conference, someone called him Ron, you know, one of the, the beat reporters called him wrong. And he said, uh, it's coach. And then he said, just kidding. It's Ron. <laughs> and I thought that was a, a fun little dig within the division to, to Jason Garrett. Oh, did, <laughs> that was, happen, did that happen recently? Oh, that's yeah. How in like love, the I day or two after yeah. it. it was I love awesome. a bit of, look, that's some fantastic banter between coaches there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it would be great if someone said uh, assistant coach to Jason Garrett and see how he responded to that. <laughs> that would be like Dwight Schrute. Dwight Schrute. Uh, your your uh, your your mate Frosty Jackson. That that actually is quite funny because um, I obviously run my own catering business, and I guess I'm the chef of the business per se. But I've always said like, don't ever call me chef. Like, call me Adam or dickhead. Like, I don't care because as soon as you start calling me chef, it kind of brings a hierarchy. So, in. Uh, Adam, has anybody? 
Promise have I called you Adam? Adam? Yeah, they have. No, no one's ever called me Adam. But like, you're, you're right, because for me, as soon as you start calling people coach <laughs> or whatever, or chef, neither of which are earned qualifications, by the way, like we don't earn these qualifications. So we just decide this, what we want to be called uh, is a bit strange. So like it, it brings a hierarchy in that we all kind of knows there, but no one needs to discuss it. So the Jason Garrett thing and the Dion Sanders one, I mean, do not even get me started on that because that's even worse than Jason Garrett. For me. Oh, that was tall. That was awful. But then, also, but then also we have uh, Scott Cervais, the Seattle Mariners baseball manager wearing a uniform with a squad number. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's weird. Is, that like uh, re- is that that retired number for fans and stuff like that? Or, or, or Birmingham when they retired Duke Bellingham's number because they made him yeah. a lot of money they wasted. Yeah. Uh, are, they, are they retiring Job's number now as well? Did he play the other day? Yeah, yeah. He needs to look. Oh, wow. Well, it's um, good for England. Yeah. Uh, Adam, Ben? A couple. Uh, the first one is... Um, I really hope that one day I have the confidence to carry out my life in the way that Kirk Cousins carries his out. Um, somehow it's back, it's assume, back to back weeks. Yeah, somehow assume, I put him in again because, I mean, yeah. listen to his press conference this week about, you know, I guess whatever you want to choose with vaccination-wise um, is, is totally up to you. But as the, you know, the quarterback of, as Jackson said, like multi-billion dollar business, who's just like, no, I think I might just build some plexiglass around me. And then, yeah, let's, let's make it clear. You're Kirk Cousins. You're no one of any level of importance or success really in your career. Like you could be replaced by probably two guys in your locker room and the team not miss too, too much of a beat. So uh, the Kirk Cousins, I think, can can stay firmly in the bin. And the second one, Jackson, I've seen you tweeting about the Mariners recently. Um, and the way in which my Twitter timeline is constructed, it's probably the first year that I've really followed how the team goes. I've been to Mariners games in the past, but I'm probably following them this year. And I think it's safe to say that if Jerry DePoto was an English football manager and made that, Kendall Graveman trade uh, in England, he would have been forced to emigrate by now because of the uh, abuse that he's received. And I, I cannot believe this bloke is allowed to carry on as he sees fit, because as far as I'm concerned, he has no interest in winning, but as long as he can keep the, this world rebuild going, um, he can just keep his job uh, for as long as he wants. So a small bit of Mariners talk on, on the pedestrian podcast that I don't think it's ever happened before, but I'm fascinated by this guy because I just think he's a complete charlatan. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll happily talk about that for two minutes here. The, I, I appreciate Jerry DePoto's approach from a pure spreadsheet standpoint, but the thing that I think he is probably very aware of and that makes general manager of the Seattle Mariners a soft landing spot is we are so devoid of hope. I don't know what the <laughs> premier league equivalent of the Seattle Mariners is, but there is support not them. Don't worry of, of the four major sports in the United States. So we're talking about 120 some odd teams. No one has gone the longest since making the playoffs in the Seattle Mariners. So any shred of future hope is you know we'll we'll all cling to and you know look it doesn't Jerry DePoto could be the best he could be Theo Epstein it's going to be tough to drag the Mariners into real contention and as long as you can get them to the trading deadline in some semblance of contention then you know, you, you buy yourself a little bit of leeway for, for making moves. The, I, I actually think the trade will look good in, in hindsight. I really do. I, 
I, I like it. And the guy that they traded Graveman for has come in and been Seattle's best player ever since. Abraham Toro, he was the number three prospect in the Astros organization. They're a very good organization. Um, it, I, I think he's a greater position of need for the future than Kendall Graveman is, who's been a very middling reliever before this season. I think they traded high on him and all of that. But this, this brings back into, and this, this applies to, to football, I imagine to soccer as well. And I, I, I'm, forgive me if calling it soccer is offensive. I, I don't know. It is. No, it is but, offensive, actually. Can you apologize for yeah, that? Yeah, you, you have to leave the podcast <laughs> now. You're banned. Football, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it applies to both football and football. And the, uh, it, it is that, you know, I mean, ult- ultimately, okay. So to backtrack a little bit, as a Seattle sports fan, we got a Sonics championship back in the 70s and then nothing. Like we're talking about, three teams that didn't win a championship for 40 years. And then all of a sudden the Seahawks finally win one and our shift as sports fans changed so much. We were just happy for some shred of national relevance. I mean, if we got mentioned on sports center, it was like, Oh my God, everyone's (laughs) talking about how they said Ken Griffey jr's name on sports center. But now that we know what championship looks like, and, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to the Seattle storm, which has won a few or the Seattle Sounders who have won a couple, but, of our main sports here, we only have really the one championship in the last half a century. And it did shift our, our patience a little bit, certainly with, with the Seahawks, but very, very truly with the Mariners, you know, we were like, okay, all of a sudden it's not good enough to just be uh, a contender for a wild card spot once every eight years. It's like, we actually know what a championship organization looks like. And, and it's the new standard. It's just that as Mariners fans, we've been beaten into submission. So badly that you know it's fine it's fine you trade a guy it doesn't matter we're not we're not competing with the dodgers or or the yankees the red sox or any of that you go on Stu, you go I, 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 it's, it's vast and but uh the fact that deshaun watson is still currently could play tomorrow is an absolute abomination. I mean, I know he's, what, fourth on the unofficial Texans depth chart. I mean, don't want to go too deep into everything because people have probably heard enough and read enough on it. But the fact it is, what, day 15, day 14 of the season actually like in earnest beginning. And, um, yeah, it's, the, it's just absolute radio silence. I mean, he's a bit back at reporters recording him walking into or walking out of practice in Houston today, which is just like, just keep quiet. Like, just keep as quiet as the league are. So the fact the league still haven't put anything down on him, he's, he's going to get suspended. He's going to miss probably October, November, if not the entire season, even before the allegations um, reach a conclusion. Um, yeah, I just, it's just tiring. Also, the justice system, which kept Michael Kendrick strung along for two and a half years and then gave him a one-day jail sentence can also get in a bin because why bother at this point? Like, his NFL career is over. It probably may have been anyway without it, but two and a half years and you give him one day, it's just kind of, come on. Here's, right? yeah. here's, here's the question. I'm actually glad you brought it up. I'd love to hear you guys' perspective. Let's, let's say you got the Seahawks franchise, but instead of Russell Wilson, you brought up Kirk Cousins earlier. I think Kirk Cousins is the perfect placeholder as a league average NFL quarterback. Uh, would you make the trade, whatever that cost is? You're the Seahawks, but instead of Russell Wilson, you got Kirk Cousins. Are you trading for Deshaun Watson? Would you trade three first round pick, your next three first round picks to have Deshaun Watson as your quarterback? A year ago, probably. 
certainly. Yeah. I'm saying, I'm saying right now, though. No, he just, no. I'm not touching him. No. no. I, mean, I, I think I was on record in this podcast saying that I would, before the allegations, when Russell Wilson was, was kicking up a fuss, I would have traded to Sean Watson for Russell Wilson straight up. You and if, me both. And I love the, Russ. Yeah, I love Russ. But, you know, it's, for me, much of a muchness talent-wise with nine extra years of his career. So I, I would have done it straight up, but I wouldn't touch the guy with the barge pole now, unfortunately. Rob, what you, you've always got something great for the bin for us. Oh, I was, I know, Jackson, a bit of time to prepare his his one. So, uh, well, you know, uh, a good couple. You know, um, the bloke who sells Russell Wilson his holiday shirts is one. <laughs> um, that's what I would go for. Um, and then the other one is, and obviously it's not an NFL related thing, but I, I think that one thing has really irritates me this week is is Manchester City. And the reason for that is because whenever you hear anybody talk about Manchester City, they always say. We're, we we never spend that kind of money and we're not big spending teams and we know we do all this. And then they just, you know, kind of ruin English football by signing, you know, players for a hundred million pounds and they may well sign another player for, you know, 150 million pounds uh, in the next sort of three weeks. And, and, and you kind of think, well, you know, as, as a big football fan in this country to just sort of see, you know, one team or two teams just snaffle up all the talent so, I mean, imagine the NFL, the NFL equivalent of this, where, like, let's say the, you know, the Patriots or whatever. Yeah, it wasn't enough to have Tom Brady. We've also got to have Deshaun Watson. And then we've got to have, you know, every great defensive lineman who within three years is going to come play for us. And we're, we're going to, we can afford it because we've got more money than everybody else. And then you kind of have just these, like, two super teams at the top of the league and everybody else can get stuffed. And then you have players going, yeah, well, I've played for my boyhood club and I'm on 100,000 pounds a week or whatever but you know I can go and play 17 games for Manchester City this year and you know maybe win a Champions League and that's better because I can be on you know 400 grand a week instead I just it just ruins everything and just makes just when you get excited again about the sport after the Euros it just sends you back to where you were before so sorry about that rant. Jack, well, Jackson, to, Jackson to, cher- cherish your salary cap in the NFL yeah. well, like the, it's the, for the world as, as much as there will be annoyances and people say it doesn't matter I promise you when you when your passion is a sport where two teams have triple the salary cap of everyone else and they just buy payers for they want it is incredibly depressing Okay, I want to to that point, and and you know I came prepared for someone to throw in the bin, but before I get there, <laughs> before I get there, I I, I do want to say we spend so much time when we talk about our teams arguing about the players or the coaches and whether we're, they can be better or worse or this and that. It comes down to ownership, right? And there is a reason that even in a salary cap league that there. Are, are only a few teams that are good every year. And, and those are teams with really good rock solid ownership that have cohesion between ownership, head coach, GM and quarterback. And that's, that's this tree that is so, so important. And you can look at teams like Cincinnati Bengals that they had a run in the, you know, kind of 2000. I want to say, you don't hold me to these years, but I think it was like 2009 to 2012. They ran out of Super Bowl quality roster every year, but they were stuck with with Andy Dalton and with an extremely cheap ownership. I wouldn't 
wouldn't risk paying to increase the quality of their facilities or pay for the best coaches or, or extend their best players or anything like that. We've seen it with Chicago uh, and, and who I'm throwing into the bin are the Denver Broncos who have put together this unbelievable uh, offense, this, this cadre of offensive weapons with Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy and Noah Fant and Melvin Gordon and Javante Williams now. And then they've got Josh field or Justin Fields staring them in the face, like to be picking ninth and to have the next Deshaun Watson, just sitting there for you and to t- take a cornerback and go with either drew lock or Teddy Bridgewater instead. Like they have all of their best players on offense are super cheap right now. That only lasts for a little bit. Jerry Judy is going to be an extremely highly paid player in this league. No fan is going to be an extremely highly paid player in this league. Same with Cortland Sutton. And when the time comes, Javante Williams. And they are missing an opportunity right now to get a – what Justin Fields is going to be a great quarterback. And, and they just passed on him and took a great corner instead. And their general manager, who I believe is just a mouthpiece for uh, John Elway, who has been terrible. I mean, yes, he won a Super Bowl, which – whatever he's probably minted for life and in Denver he's minted for life as their quarterback anyway but he's been a terrible general manager and he comes out and he says well franchise cornerbacks become available a lot less often than the franchise quarterbacks and that's why we we went with Patrick Sertain instead of uh, uh, Justin Fields and it is just I could not imagine seeing them put together the level of talent on both sides of the ball that Denver has and just be willing to over and over again, punt the most important position. It's crazy to me. Yeah. Um, I, I, I imagine that they're in the, the crosshairs of the Rogers conversation. If that ever picks up any steam at the start of the off season, because that made no sense. Also back on the Russell Wilson thing, the reported offer for Russell Wilson from the bears is kind of like poo pooed by most but with one of those picks they offered, they got Justin Fields and they give the Giants a few picks the next couple of years. But yeah, uh, I don't really know what my point was there, but that's what I realised a few weeks ago. Um, two things on Man City and Grealish. Uh, I'm well surprised that he left. The it, Jack Grealish in the Birmingham bubble is, um, yeah, it sounds quite important to Jack Grealish um, availability. Um, but also... 20 years ago, my football club got relegated with Man City and we could not be further detached from that uh, from that entity that got relegated below us, I it's, believe. It's okay. You just need somebody with lots of money to buy all the players for you. Yeah, and it's fine. It's insane. It's, insane. it's a romantic journey of, you know, <laughs> dripping wealth. <laughs> all right. All right. Let me, let, me run, let me run an idea past you guys real quick. Me and my buddy Tyson have been talking about this for a couple of years. How cool would it be if a professional sports league was truly, truly, truly invested in the competition level. And if you bought into an ownership stake, let's just use the NFL because it's a common ground for all of us. All right. You, you own an NFL team. It is a stone cold guarantee that in six years, it's going to be worth a lot more than it is right now. You have guaranteed profit. All of your competition is wholly invested in you becoming more profitable. That doesn't happen anywhere in a capitalist society. What if when you took over ownership, you had to win one playoff game or one playoff series in or in those first six years in order to keep your team. And if you can't do that, you have to sell your team. I love it. One, Sounds one, like, is that, is that one, one playoff win in how many years? 
Yeah, I'm mean, Jody Allen's going to be shitting us I'm thinking, Jesus. Pete Carroll's going to be a bit of What? But you know what I mean? Like, you're guaranteed, okay, you, you know what? You went out and you didn't spend and you decided to watch the bottom line and you didn't care if your team was good. You didn't care about the effect it had on a region that cares deeply about your performance. Okay, great. Sell it. You make a few hundred million dollars. That's a win for you. But now we're getting somebody else in here. I think it would be awesome if there was accountability for ownership to win. Yeah, I agree. I think this is the problem with the NFL. The NFL is as close to kind of the ideal, I think, because you have a draft and because the the opportunity to sort of tank because there are only 17 games as opposed to, you know, the many more that you have in the NBA and the, and the Major League and, and the NHL, that actually it does mean something. And I think that the impact that rookies have in this sport versus some of the others is also big. So I think you've kind of got that parity and you see different teams winning Super Bowl. Obviously, the Patriots had a great dynasty, haven't they? But generally speaking, there's new teams emerging all the time as contenders. But you're right, Jackson, that is the big issue the NFL has is that there are about, you know, let's say 10 owners who just don't care. You know, as far as they're concerned, if they're making money, that's good enough. And they don't have the ambition and they don't push and they don't strive to reach the next stage. I worry a little bit that the Seahawks might end up falling into that that sort of range unless they get new owners because Paul Allen is no longer there. But they're never going to be a Lions or the Brown family in Cincinnati. I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? Like you say, they're just not invested in any infrastructure whatsoever. They treat it, I think the, the comment with the Browns is that they treat it like a family business. Like a, and, and a family business, like a baker's or something, not mm. a, not an NFL team, and that and that is the problem. And it would be kind of exciting. It would be nice to to find that sort of perfect, you know, uh, sort of everything works. You know, this is comp- competitive. Everybody's in it to win. Everybody's pushing and striving to get to the to the championship. There is a level of parity where you just don't have one rich owner who has happens to have more money than the rest and can buy the title, which is what happens in England. That would be so good. And I, I, you know, it just doesn't exist really. Does it? I don't, there's there's no out there that, that produces that. To take me back to, I think my biggest bin of the year, I'm almost surprised we're having a season in the NFL this year, because if I was the leader of the NFL PA and the owners came to me and said, look, I'm sorry, lads, but because we lost so much money last year, the salary cap has to come down by $18 million. I mean, I just would have walked every player like, you know, like the Pied Piper of Hamlin up into a mountain and said, fuck off. We're not playing until you sort your lives out. Because in a year's time, you're going to get all this gambling money and Disney money. Like, I, I'm still quite stunned that we're going into a season with a low salary cap because they had a bit of an off year last year. I mean, it just, I, I'm, I'm pretty here's, stunned here's by the it. Reason. I, 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 in a vacuum, you're absolutely right. But here's the reason NFL contracts aren't fully guaranteed like they're in the NBA, Major League Baseball. And, and the, the players just can't afford. I mean, there's a few players, you know, the top 50 players can afford to sit out a year, but the other 1,720 players can't. They, they just can't because there's going to be a new draft class that comes in and is going to take their job. Mm-hmm. And they, they just, they, they, they just can't as an 1800 player union decide that, yeah, you know what? We'll punt a year. You could do it in baseball and we've seen it. You could do it in basketball. We've seen it, but I don't think that you can do it in the NFL. That's I think the owners amazing. know that. And here's the thing. You can have 1800 millionaires and that is a drop in the bucket compared to 32 billionaires. 
that seemed like a failing of the last CBA, if I'm not mistaken, whereby Absolutely. a lot of the better play players were saying, please don't sign this because it's very much short-term gain for uh, for long-term potential losses. And I think they've really been stiffed over here. Now, look, Rob's yawning. It, it's nearly one o'clock in the morning. I think oh my I, feel, God. I feel like we've kept you guys for, for way too long. Stuart, you got, you got anything else that we can uh, bring to the table before we let these no, guys No, I think go? so. They've given us far too much of their uh, hard-earned free time for yeah. this stupid podcast already, and we're eternally grateful as always. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. Skip Bayless put himself back in the bin, uh, but Jenny Taft out with that fantastically on their show yesterday, which is always fun to see. Uh, Skip Bayless, oh, I don't think so. Preseason apparently starts this weekend, as I mentioned earlier. Wasn't had no idea about who are they playing again, and when's it kick off? Raiders. 2 a.m. I don't know what day. Oh, 2 a.m. Wait, well, it's in Vegas, so Vegas is Pacific. eight hours as well. Yeah, yeah. seven eight hours. Uh, yeah, no. Jackson, I you, you can let us know how the game is, Jackson. You can just yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll, 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 I, I will. I will. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, everyone listen. Just jump on Jackson's timeline about six hours after the game's finished to just get a get a recap. Um, but yeah, preseason starts. NFL season's here. Uh, Rob Jackson, where can people catch you on the socials and? Uh, writings and everything. Jackson? Uh, yeah, so you can, uh, I mean, the only relevant place to find me is on Twitter, and that's at Jackson Bevins. Jackson does not have a K in it. It's J-C-S-O-N. Remember, no K is okay. And uh, I think I'm the only one on the planet who spells their name that way. So type that It must that have in, been a nightmare in school. It must have been an absolute nightmare in school. You know, when you're a kid, it matters to you so much that your name is spelled right and pronounced right. And so people don't see the K and they call me Jason or they, they uh, <laughs> you know, here my name is Jackson. So they put a K in it. It's the same thing that I would do in their position. Nowadays, someone calls me Jason, I just respond. And if someone spells my name with the K, I just respond. Uh, Rob? Yeah, I do the same when people call me names um, as well. <laughs> um, yeah, um, Seahawks Draft Blog. YouTube channel, um, new podcast coming soon. Stay tuned for that. Um, can't tell you what that is. And um, Twitter, which is always a joy, at Rob Staten. Well, yeah, and then, uh, Stu and I celebrated our five-year anniversary of this podcast a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it still feels like a terrific thrill. Guys. No, but, you know, it's uh, only really comes about because of uh, your guys' generosity of time. And uh, if you'd said to us a few years ago that we'd have people of your caliber on, uh, I'd have laughed in your face. And for anyone that is listening, um, the writing of Rob and Jackson are beyond essential, I would say, for keeping in touch with how the team's going uh, during the course of the on and off season. And, uh, in, you know, educate yourselves by following those guys because, um, yeah, what they say is very rarely wrong. Yeah, I'll, I'll send that oh. I'll send that Tennessee in the post. <laughs> Here, I'll, I'll, I'll say this is just sort of a, a parting shot. I'm, I'm very fortunate to discuss, uh, you know, I do write a, a weekly Seahawks column during the season called Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that I'm really proud of and, and all of that. But uh, the, I guess, moderate success of that has given me access to be on radio and, and be on podcasts and all that. And I don't think there's a single one that I look forward to being a part of more than this one. And I, I really do want to uh, say thank you to you guys for making room in your schedule at midnight to, to bring me on and, and hear me ramble. So thank you very much for that. 
Yeah, no, we massive, as I said, massively appreciate both of you taking your time. And Rob, enjoy watching Callum O'Hare on Saturday. Who? <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly what. I mean, I could tell Adam that Northampton's two goals yesterday were scored by a Spurs player. Spurs He's never going to see. Wow. Keon Etete, what a player. He's a he's a unit um, yeah uh, yeah uh, user space, spaces and places popping.com iTunes Spotify patreon.com forward slash the pedestrian podcast go and pledge your hard earned money just to support us if you so wish we appreciate all the guys and girls who are already on there as well until next time though, this has been the pedestrian podcast and Jackson we will see you for the Niners game on December the 5th and Rob we're still waiting for you to confirm your attendance at that game hey hey it's it's on book it and let's get there early and do this proper the flights are booked Stuart flights and I are, are on the same flight yeah, yeah. we'll be there I love it I love it and go Hawks go Hawks